message, um, so to speak. Today, our text, it will inevitably take us to the topic of false teaching. Um, And to make it applicable for us today, we have to address some of the false teachings that exist today. So I will be referencing some false teachings that are pervasive throughout the church, as well as those who promote these false teachings. Now, I know some people are against naming names at the pulpit, but I believe it's better for you to have a specific reference point to these false teachings, rather than me just giving you some abstract teaching or concept that's out there, I can give you a specific place to go to check it out for yourself so that you can take scripture and can take these teachings and put it against scripture and see for yourself and judge for yourself whether it's true or whether it is false. It's also my duty as an elder, as a pastor, to faithfully guard the flock from false teaching. Scripture is clear on this. 2 Timothy, 2 Peter 2, Hebrews 13, 17, Titus 1, 9, 10. So in order for me to be faithful to God, to be faithful to the text, and to be faithful to all y'all, this is part of my duty. Now, I know that some of these teachers are perhaps close and dear to your hearts, And that's why I'm setting the table because it might hurt to hear your teacher that you have followed or listened to in the past be put in this category. Well, admittedly, some of these teachers I myself have supported in the past as well. And primarily, it's due to laziness and not doing my due diligence to check their teaching with Scripture, as well as uh, for the women teachers who um, I have not been respecting my sisters in Christ as well as I should have. In the past, I have neglected the teaching conducted by women, assuming that the teaching that women do to other women is something, some mysterious teaching or some form of communication that just because I don't understand it, it doesn't make it wrong. And so I've just never really dealt with it or looked at it. And, that, and by doing that, I haven't loved my sisters in Christ, especially my wife, because I haven't done my due diligence as the, as the husband of my wife or as a pastor in a congregation to protect the women of the flock from the false teaching that exists out there because I was lazy I was a lazy fool so that all being said if anyone today if anyone I've mentioned today bothers you like it it just it maybe it wrecks you and you want to talk let's let's talk let's have a discussion because I'm not going to have time to thoroughly dive into everyone that I name in my message today and perhaps, perhaps, perhaps my perception of the teaching is, is, is misled. Maybe I'm off the path somewhere. And, and so let's have that conversation and let's talk about it. And perhaps you can steer me to repentance if I am wrong. But keep in mind, we must use scripture as our rule, not our emotions, nor our experiences with these people. We must always use scripture. Not even my opinion that I give you this morning, though I pray is rooted in Scripture, even that you must take up against Scripture and test it and say, is what he is saying, is this true? So with that being said, let me start with a quote from a popular Bible teacher that was spoken at a conference. This person said, I read my New Testament over and over I'm not seeing what he promised. That's Jesus. I'm unsettled and unsatisfied. I want holy fire. 
I'll tell you who said that in a few moments. See, we tend to look for more from God, don't we? Unfortunately, we tend to look beyond what he has already given us, beyond his word, beyond his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God in the flesh. Remember when I preached on Acts 2, 42, 47? Things like a month and a half, two months ago. What were the people devoted to? Those 3,000 who just came to Christ, the New Testament church, the first church, what were they devoted to? The teaching of the word of God, right? They weren't looking for the next Pentecost. They weren't looking for the next holy fire. The word was enough. The teaching of the apostles was enough. So do we truly believe that scripture is enough for us today? And we might believe it to be authoritative to a point, and we might even believe that it's infallible, that it has no error. But do we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Is it enough for us, or does our faith require more? So we're going to be tackling this question as we go to Matthew 16, verses 1 through 12. That's our text for today. So you can go ahead and Open up your Bibles or however you want to read it. It will be on the wall behind me. And in our text today, we are going to see how the Jewish leaders of the day refused to believe Jesus despite the obvious signs and how their efforts to undermine his teachings still lurk about today. But before we go to the Lord's word, let us pray. Father, we come to you humbly. We thank you for your mercy and the grace that you have bestowed to us by your Son and through his blood. We submit ourselves to you, Spirit, and to your teaching. We ask that you help us recognize the idols of our hearts, that you help us open our ears and hear your teaching. Help us have a peace and a calmness when we're made uncomfortable. Help us to desire to grow in the truth. Be in the word this morning. May you be glorified by what is said. May we respond appropriately. May we continue to grow as one body here at Hope, Father. As we seek to glorify you in all that we do, continue to protect us from evil, protect us from the false teachings that exist out there. We ask all this, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to go ahead, and we're going to read verses just 1 through 4, and then we'll tackle 5 through 12 um, later. So verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16 of Matthew. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So here, a conflict once again rises up with the Jewish leaders, but this time it's not just the Pharisees, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two groups of Jewish thought oftentimes are opposed with one each other theologically and socially and politically. But these are the two groups that make up the seven-member council as, uh, that's called the Sanhedrin. 
Um, and if you're familiar with the Gospels a little bit, you probably are familiar with the Sanhedrin Council. It's, a, it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the more conservative group of the two. They believed in a literal interpretation of Scripture, whereas the Pharisees, they also believed in the interpretation of Scripture, but they took the traditions of the elders. Remember we encountered that in chapter 15? The traditions of the elders, they gave these oral traditions equal authority with the word of God, something the Sadducees were not willing to do. The Sadducees, they were big in being involved with the government. They loved the government. They loved the Romans especially. They would cozy up to them, and they would leverage that political advantage for their purposes. The Pharisees, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with the government, especially the Romans. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or an afterlife. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees' locus of power or their center of power was the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees used the synagogues throughout the country. So their power was in the synagogues. That's why after the Romans came and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, the Sadducees, they just collapsed because they they lost their temple. They lost their, their seat of power. The Sadducees tended to be people who were wealthier and people of higher status. They took the majority of the positions in the Sanhedrin council. Whereas the Pharisees were more like the common folk, the poor people, the people that lived down the country. Because they were with the synagogues and that's just demographically where they were at. Also the Sadducees were people who believed in the inheritance. They were like a wealth and uh, health and wealth prosperity type gospel. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they, because they didn't believe in an afterlife, they believed in the best life now, what you could get out of life now with God's blessing. Whereas the Pharisees were more focused, they were kind of on the fence there, the here and now, but also what was coming. So these two groups, ultimately though, Matthew's presenting them together to represent the fullness, fullness of Jewish uh, religious leadership coming against Jesus, right? It's not just the Pharisees. It's the entire religious head of Jewish leader, religious leadership coming against Jesus. And they come to him and they seek a sign. And this time, it's not just any sign. It's a sign from heaven. Now, what kind of sign or miracle they're looking for, it has to be apparently pretty traumatic. Maybe something that's apocalyptic, maybe something that's real glorious and triumphal to uh, usher in the ministry or the reign of the Messiah. But whatever they're looking for, apparently the signs that Jesus has done before, which they have clearly have heard of, none of them apparently qualify to be a sign from heaven. And as such, Jesus recognizes that they're not really looking for a sign because they just don't believe. And he calls them out on it. He says, you're able to read the signs of nature. You can predict the weather by looking at the sky, but yet you're unable to interpret the signs of the times. Well, what are these signs of the times that Jesus is referring to? These are the signs of his ministries, his current ministry, his, his healings, his other miracles, his teachings. These religious leaders, these teachers, they can predict the weather, yet they can't see plainly the signs before them. And they're teachers of Scripture. They should be able to recognize when the Messiah is before them, but they are unable to because, again, they refuse to believe. And Jesus tells them if they're unable to read the signs already given, an evil and adulterous generation won't get a sign except for the one of Jonah. And if you want to know about more about the sign of Jonah, you can check out our Easter message on our website um, where I first preached on it 
uh, back in Matthew 12. So you can check that out online. So we too, right, today we know how to predict the weather. You know, we, we can use our app on our phone or the radar, the forecast, the newspaper or on TV. But most of us, we can look to the sky too and we can kind of get an idea when you've lived in an area long enough when it's going to rain, when it's not, and, and so forth. But the question for us is, do we recognize the signs of Jesus' ministry for what they are? Or are we unable to see them? Are we looking for more? Are we looking for a Pentecost moment? A moment that is clearly from heaven, because whatever we get from Scripture isn't enough. It doesn't satisfy us, so we're looking for more. We're looking for holy fire. And this is exactly what Beth Moore was teaching at the 28th General Conference of the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. Because for Beth Moore, New Testament isn't enough. And this isn't just one quote I've taken from her. You read her book, she teaches private revelation, and that it's okay to hear from God apart from Scripture. That's not biblical. She's looking for more, and we shouldn't be. But perhaps... We're waiting on that breakthrough in our lives. See, Jesus didn't die so you could have victory over life on this earth. He died so that you may have victory over death and sin. Sometimes that better job, it doesn't come. Sometimes believers get sick and they die. Or maybe we are waiting for our felt needs to be met. Our faith in Christ is strong But boy, once that felt need is taken away from us, once that ministry at church is no longer existing, it's another story. Our faith in Christ no longer is is biblical. It's more focused on my felt needs being met. But our faith is not predicated on witnessing miracles in our lives or having our felt needs met, right? It's predicated on Jesus Christ and on him alone, And this is something the Pharisees and the Sadducees refused to do. So we must be careful not to think that our faith is weak or absent because we're not witnessing Pentecost over and over again. The early church wasn't concerned with that, and neither should we be concerned with that today. What gives our faith significance is not us. It's what we put our faith in. It's the object of our faith that matters. And praise God for that. Because our faith is weak. Look at the faith of the disciples. I mean, we struggle to have good faith. So let's be grateful that what, met, what gives our faith significance is the work of his son and who his son is and not us. Because we fail all the time. This is why we praise him and we thank him and we partake in communion. If our faith is in miracles, we, will, we are no different than these religious leaders. But if our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ, then we don't need miracles. We just need the word of God, just like the early church. They were devoted to the word of God. Did miracles happen that time? Yes, but they weren't chasing after them. They were chasing after knowing the word of God and knowing Jesus more because that's all that matters. That is all that will ever matter in all of eternity. Jesus is sufficient. That's his word is sufficient. You cannot separate the two. This lack of understanding by the Pharisees and Sadducees is seen in their teaching as well. 
not just in their desire to see a miracle. Let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here, Jesus is warning his disciples of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And when he talks about beware of the leaven, this confuses his disciples. I mean, at first, they're like, oh, we forgot the bread. Maybe that's, he's getting on us because we didn't bring the bread, as if they need bread from the man who can take just a few loaves and feed thousands with it, right? I mean, this is significant, but yet they are still confused and Jesus challenges their thinking. He's using this as a teaching moment with his grace and steadfast, long-suffering love that he has for them. And he asks them to recall his feeding. And he's like, why are you worried about this? Clearly, I'm speaking about something else. And he is. He's speaking of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So with all the differences that exist between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what is it about their teaching that Jesus could be warning against? There are two perspectives I want to pull out, out of this, and this is one, what they actually taught, and two, their willingness ultimately to undermine the ministry and teaching of Jesus as they just tried to do in front of Jesus, to Jesus in front of his disciples and all those that are following him. So what they taught, excuse me, the Pharisees, were over, they were overly legalistic. They followed the law to the T, and they even created laws to help them follow the law even more so. They observed the Sabbath, the kosher laws, added to Scripture their traditions of the elders, as we saw in Matthew 15. But yet, they're ignoring their neighbors in distress. They're ignoring their neighbors in need. And as Jesus told us in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, their hearts were far from God. They failed to obey the second great commandment of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, you break the whole law. Anytime you break any commandment of the law, but the law is fulfilled by obeying Love your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and being, and love the neighbor. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, they were focused on the here and now. Their lack of belief in the afterlife and resurrection, if you don't believe in that, what you have now, this is it. So clearly that impacted what they taught. So they focused on wealth and prosperity blessings that they understood to be in Scripture. And they would use that, and they would use the government to leverage their position to gain prosperity and blessings for the here and now. And both of these teachings go against Scripture and the ministry of Jesus, as Jesus has clearly pointed out through the Gospel of Matthew. Thus, they're trying to undermine his ministry, and they're trying to undermine who he claims to be. See, Jesus has no interest in obeying the traditions of the elders at the expense of obeying Scripture. Clearly, Jesus believed in an afterlife, right? We, that's, that's clear and obvious, and he believes that one ought to live their life here today in such a way that it impacts the rewards that they get 
in eternity, not now. And we'll talk about that on the back end of Matthew 16 in two weeks, about how, how we live here impacts what we receive in the future, and that's how we ought to live. Fortunately, though, this leaven of this teaching, it exists in the church today. Now, remember this about leaven. All it takes is just a tiny bit of leaven, and it permeates a whole batch of dough. A lot of dough. Remember in the example that Jesus used in in reference to how the kingdom will grow, a little leaven impacted close to, was it, 50 pounds of dough? So just a little leaven. And leaven seems harmless, right? It's, it's, It's good for the dough, but it will impact all of it. So we must be careful with anything that might represent a false teaching. We have many religious leaders and teachers today who teach theologies that are not biblical, that undermine scripture and the ministry of Jesus, despite many of these leaders professing to be Christian. Many of these teachings today are a blended mess of what the Pharisees and Sadducees taught. We know the ones who live strict lives um, in adherence to the Old Testament. The Seventh-day Adventist church, they started out this way, um, and many of the churches today still ascribe to this teaching of adhering to the Old Testament to the T, observing the Sabbath, the kosher laws, all of that strictly, thinking that that's how you get justified and that's how you're going to make it. We also have the various churches uh, scattered throughout that believe that we must adhere to the law to the T, we are justified by Jesus, but his justification allows us to observe the law to the point to where that is our, that's our sanctification, and that's the measure of our justification, and that's what gets us into heaven. Again, that's not scripture. Hebrews deals with that. Paul deals with that, especially in uh, Galatians. Jesus has made it plain in this gospel that no one born of man can meet the requirements of the Old Testament or, or the law, Right? But rather, it is fulfilled when we love God, again, like I've said before, with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And when we love our neighbors as ourselves, which you and I, we fail at this. We do. But praise God for his son, Jesus Christ, because it's fulfilled in him. But not too far off from this, and perhaps this one and the ones that follow are the more common false teachings that exist in the evangelical church today. We have this one, which is, I think, incredibly popular, and that's moralism or morality that's absent of the gospel. And this person is perhaps the biggest influencer of this movement, of this teaching. Um, We still have some of his books floating around. And this is Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life. Now, this book is well-intended. Rick Warren has a good heart. He loves people in the church. But this book and moralism is absent of any gospel message. And his book, The Purpose Driven Life, has no clear gospel message in it. And if your life is going to be purposely driven, you need the gospel. If it's absent of the gospel, it's a life in vain. And ultimately, regardless of how you live that life, it will lead you to hell. So if you want purpose in your life, you need the gospel. You need the word of God. You need Jesus Christ. The closest he gets in this book for a presentation of the gospel is this. I'll read you. This is on page 58 of his book. First, believe. Believe God loves you and made you for his purposes. Believe God has chosen you to have a relationship with Jesus who died on the cross for you. Believe that no matter what you've done, God wants to forgive you. Second, receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. Receive his forgiveness for your sins. 
So I invite you to bow your head and quietly, he's writing this in a book, I invite you to bow your head and quietly whisper the prayer that would change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. If you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Some of that sounds good, right? But again, this is the leaven. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of hell. There's no mention of the judgment of God. Ultimately, there's no gospel. And a prayer does not change your eternity. You cannot just say some words and all of a sudden your eternity is changed. It's not how it works. And we'll see that when we continue with uh, chapter 16 of Matthew in two weeks. And if you go ahead and please read it, because I think it's pretty clear. You can read it when you leave church today. It's clear. It's not about saying a prayer. But according to Rick Warren, you just say these words, and boom, your eternity is changed. But it's not. And nowhere else in that book does he talk about repentance or the gospel or judgment or hell. And that's the danger of moralism. It sounds good. And I think many of us today would agree that living a moral life, it's a good thing, right? Right? It sounds good. We want people to be the best versions of themselves to a point, right? We want them to have good, blessed lives. <clears throat> but if it is void of the gospel, again, it's a life lived in vain. And though it is a life lived by the standards of society, and they do well at that, it's still one that is destined for hell and ultimately is helpless and pointless to that person. Moralism is only a few shades off the health and wealth prosperity of the Sadducees that persists today with pastors like Joel Olstein, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Christine Kane, Joyce Meyer. Um, I don't have quotes for them. You can just Google them up. These guys are pretty obvious, kind of big. That should be easy to figure out that these are health and wealth prosperity teachers. They all teach God is here for you to live your best life. Some false teachers out there, like Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church, which is, they're known for uh, the, the music, Bethel Music, um, which I'll deal with that in another sermon. He teaches that we need to think outside of Scripture, that we need to go off the map to experience God. Meaning, if you stick to Scripture, you're restricting your discipleship with God, that you can't really know God unless you put Scripture to the side and allow these secret, intimate experiences to happen where you can experience holy laughter and that will allow you to run through their tunnel of fire and experience a connection with God that Christians who are enslaved to Scripture can't experience. But yet Jesus is clear, and he tells us this in John 10 and 14, that if we are to abide in him, and John 15, his words, his teachings will abide in us. What he has said, the word of God will abide in us, meaning we stick to scripture and we allow scripture to keep us from error. Jesus will manifest himself to those who love him and those who love him are those who keep his words. If you want to know Jesus, you have to keep his word. You can't just put it to the side and leave it alone. Another unhealthy teaching out there is one that focuses on God's grace, absent of the call to repent or to be obedient. This one's not moralism, though it is close. For here they don't teach that as much as they teach about Jesus, but they won't talk about hell. And perhaps we could call this one uh, experientialism. I don't know if that's a word. It's hard to say. It sounds like a, I made it a word. That's all that matters. 
This is where your faith is all about a positive experience. And again, this is the shade of the health and wealth. It doesn't, health and wealth is an easy thing to get caught up in, especially in America. Here you live as you want, as long as you love others well, and you have good experiences, and you promote good experiences. Jen Hatmaker, I think, is a good, pro- pro- good promo- proponent of this, embracing the homosexual lifestyle, saying it's come as you are and stay as you are. That's not biblical. Perhaps this is due to our, our lack of veneration for the attributes of God, that we just shrug our shoulders when attributes of God are kind of taken like, eh, doesn't really matter. It's a good song, though, and you probably know where I'm going with this, reckless love. We're teaching people that God, that Jesus was reckless in how he loved us. That reckless is an attribute of God and is okay when it's done out of love. As if the means, the end justify the means. But that's not God at all. That's not God at all. He doesn't just throw out the law. Like Stephen Verdict says, Jesus broke the law because he loved you. That's not scripture. That goes against who Jesus is. He fulfilled the law because he loved us. That's why he died on the cross. And he didn't die on the cross without considering, like, oh, didn't see this one coming, or I don't care if I'm dying on the cross for you guys. I'm doing it out. No, it, from the, before the foundations of the earth was laid, God the Father knew he was going to send God the Son to take on flesh and to die for you, to live a life of obedience so that he could be the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb for your sins. But when we just say, well, it's a good song, well, he could have used any other word besides reckless. Relentless would have been okay. I mean, but reckless, why? But, and then we have a generation of people who are just like going around, reckless love, man. Hey, Jesus loves you, man. It doesn't matter. And that's, no, it does. It does matter how we love. It does matter. If it didn't matter, why do we have the teachings of Jesus? Why do we have the word of God? Why does Paul tell us that all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness for the good work? Why? If it's reckless, let's not give it any consideration. Let's not give it any thought. And again, this is an example of leaven. You think it's just a song. It's, that's how it works. That's how it permeates. We need to be zealous of who our God is. To look at the holiness of God and to shrug our shoulders at the teachings of his attributes, what does that say about his holiness? The God who burns a bush without consuming it and tells Moses, hey, take off your sandals before you walk. He's walking on dirt, and God tells him, take your sandals off because this dirt that you're walking on is holy. And we just shrug our shoulders as if God, no, he's, he, just, he loves us so much, and his holiness doesn't really matter. That's what we are saying. So we have to beware of the leaven. Jesus warns us to be wary of what is taught by those claiming to be leaders of our faith because oftentimes we don't realize that it's, it's an unhealthy teaching if we're not careful. And this is why I am zealous, it's probably obvious, of what we sing, what we read, what we study, who we study from. Everything impacts our life. Some of you leave this church and you, and you wonder, why do I leave church and I go home and I just don't feel the same? It's because of what you expose yourself to outside of church. We have to look at our lives as a whole. And I wish I could say I could get up here and say that the leaven isn't a threat here in America in this day and age, but it is.
and I'll, I'll say this because of proximity, and I was not I was kind of debating this. Open theism is not a biblical theology. Open theism is a teaching that God doesn't know the future, doesn't know how things are going to work out. And if you believe in open theism, you can embrace an idea that God is reckless. But it's not scripture. And I say this because this isn't as, it's becoming more popular, but primarily due to proximity. And this, isn't, this shouldn't be a secret, but Shane Holden, the pastor of First Free Church, he's an open theist. He's an open, he, he, he admits it. He does not hold that back. But it is not biblical, plain and simple. And that's why he can believe in a hell that's not eternal. He, he, and that's why he, he can believe that God doesn't know what's going on, or, and he believes that God doesn't cause sicknesses, even though he made the hand of Moses leprous. He, he clearly does those things. But open theism, it doesn't fit with Scripture. And I say that out of love and respect, because I know some of you go to First Free, some of you have family that goes to First Free, and I'm not saying that everything out there is bad, but again, it's the leaven you have to watch out for. Take scripture, measure, just, just don't take my word for it, all right? Don't take my word for it. Take God's word, his word, his authority. Test it, test it and prove it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But don't, you're responsible for your soul ultimately. And I'm responsible for what I teach you and feed you. And God will hold me accountable to that. The teachings of scripture, they can be difficult to the first world Westerner, where the idolization of self-satisfaction is primary. The teachings I discussed to this morning, they're born out of a need to be popular, a need to be welcomed, to be liked, rather than out of a need to be honest and true to the teaching of Jesus, no matter the cost. They're even born out of the fact that this is hard and I don't understand it. So how do, how, do I, how do I embrace this teaching that I don't get or this teaching that makes me so uncomfortable? And so we come up with something else because we rationalize, well, God's all about love and it's unconditional, which again goes against Scripture. The Pharisees and Sadducees added to and they removed from Scripture what they wanted so it would fit their agendas. And it still happens today. And we must be wary anytime somebody tries to add a special experience, a special insight, or encourages us to go off the map with the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, again, this is, this is a form of using God's name in vain. We're, we just throw around the Holy Spirit as if it's the answer to everything, all private revelation outside of Scripture. Well, as long as it's led by the Spirit, that's just another way of saying, follow your heart, which is wicked and evil. This teaching, it undermines the authority of Jesus and his teaching and his ministry. It smells good, though. It smells good. It's why we're attracted to it. But it's not the good news, and it's not the gospel. Not the gospel of Scripture. Thankfully, we don't have to add a Scripture, nor do we need to take away from it. What he has taught Jesus, that is, what he has done, it is enough, and we need nothing else. As Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, why do we think we can save anyone apart from it? Why do we think we must go off the map or ask for holy fire to save people? The only teaching that we ought to find acceptable is the one rooted in Scripture, one that acknowledges our sinful nature, which leads to our deserving of eternal damnation while praising God for his grace to send his son to be sacrificed as the perfect spotless lamb 
for our sins so that we may have eternal life, one that starts in the here and now and then extends into the life after, recognizing that we who have tasted of God's mercy are those who have acknowledged our sins and, and we desire to turn from them. That's repentance. We desire to turn away, away from them and seek a life of righteousness, wishing to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by the washing of God's word. And we seek to worship him in spirit and truth. Not just spirit, spirit and truth. And the truth part is the word of God. And we do this as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, where he will judge those who have been justified, sanctified by his blood to eternal life, and those who have not to eternal damnation. This is part of what we celebrate communion for, to remind us of the feast that awaits us when he does return. Now, this gospel, it doesn't promise a great marriage. It doesn't. Becoming a Christian will not fix your marriage. A family, the gospel does not promise a family life that's not dysfunctional. You could become a Christian and your family life could get more messed up. It doesn't promise good health, a good job, that you won't struggle with depression. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of our time, well, I guess it's a while ago, a little over 100 years ago, but modern times, he struggled with depression. It was an ongoing battle for him. It doesn't even promise you a good experience beyond your born-again moments. But I will tell you what the gospel does promise you. And we'll go to scripture for this, because I'm not just going to make it up. This is what God's word says. It promises you forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's repentance part, that's sanctification. And then, of course, the Old Testament, Psalm 103, 10, 14. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our name. He remembers that we are dust. Notice that there. This is Old Testament teaching. This is the gospel. Whose transgressions are removed? Those who fear him, not just anyone. Those who fear him, those who respect him and submit to him. The gospel promises eternal life. Matthew 16, 24, 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not about getting your best life. It's not about following your desires. It's not about your own understanding. It's about denying it and following him. You don't know where he has gone if you don't know the word of God. 2 Timothy 1.10. This is Paul talking about Jesus and his purpose, why he came and all that, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who polished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life and immortality comes to light through the gospel, through the word of God. And the gospel is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God all the way to the end of Revelation. It's old and new. It's all of it. It's not just Jesus. It's all of it because Jesus is the word. The gospel promises us freedom from the power of sin. This is Romans 6.1.14. I'm not going to read the whole passage. But if you're looking for a passage to memorize, memorize Romans 6, 1 through 14. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has been dead, excuse me, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And at the end of that passage in verse 14, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The gospel promises mercy and grace when we are tempted to help us with this. Hebrews 4, 14, 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Gospel gives us power to live contently and satisfied. Second Corinthians twelve nine. my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's Jesus talking to Paul. Therefore, Paul will boast all the more gladly of his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Is his grace sufficient? Or do you need that holy fire? Do you need that felt need met? Do you need that breakthrough to happen? Is his grace, this is perhaps the hardest teaching for us as believers in America to learn and to put into practice. I struggle with this daily. Is his grace sufficient? Or do I need more? Gospel promises wisdom from God. James 1.5, you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give generously to all without reproach. Gospel promises revelation of who Jesus, who God is. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Who loves Jesus? The ones who keep his commandments. Where do we find his commandments? Scripture, Old Testament especially. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. You want God the Father to love you? This is the Trinitarian doctrine right here. You want his Father to love you? You got to keep his commandments so Jesus can love you because if he loves you, God will love you. See this? This is what we call a condition. This is God does not love. Jesus does not love unconditionally. This is a, a good verse to begin that conversation. You have to keep his commandments. Plain and simple. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Manifest means I will reveal myself to him. You want to know more about Jesus? You don't need that holy fire. You don't need to go off the map and experience some secret experience of the spirit. You just need to be diving into the word, devoting yourself to the word, praying about the word, and, he, and, and, and obeying the word, submitting to it, regardless of how hard it is, wrestling with it. And then he will reveal himself to you. Finally, the gospel is all that we need. Second Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And what is this? How is this done? It's done through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All that you need for life is found in the gospel. I mean, it's not going to tell you how to do heart surgery, but all that you need for life and for eternity and how to live is found in the gospel, in the word of God. Nowhere else. Devotional book isn't going to show it to you. It's in his word. And that's where we need to stay. That's where we need to stay grounded. And anytime we hear anyone that tries to lead us away from that, no matter how good they sound, no matter how dynamic of a personality, or what kind of a blessing they have been in our life in the past, we need to stay away from that. Because all it takes is a little leaven. And Jesus is clear. 
Beware of the leaven. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your plan that you ordained from the beginning, from before the beginning, whenever it just blows my mind to think of that moment when you were like, this is how we're going to do it. This is how I'm going to glorify myself. And that's all done in a very articulate, well-thought-out way. And it's all about you. And though we have brought the curse upon the creation, you had a way to redeem creation. All of creation and all of humanity who accepts your Son as Lord and Savior, Father. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that revelation. We thank you for your word that you have been able to give us this book, this collection of books and letters from the saints and the prophets and the apostles who have gone before us. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that you've given your spirit to dwell within us that causes our heart to burn when you're teaching is going on and when we hear you teaching, we hear what's true. We ask that you give us discernment, Father. Help us renew our minds so that we may know your will, what is good and perfect, and we may discern from what is right and just and that we will be aware of the leaven that's out there. Help us recognize false teaching. Help us slay the idols of our hearts. And if we must, let us shed tears as we let go of certain teachers or people who have influenced our lives, Father. And we thank you that you have held, held us fast to your truth and that you've kept us in your faith. And we ask that you keep us there, Father, despite ourselves. Give us a willingness to study your scriptures, recognizing that it's all that we need, that anything that we need for excellence and, and to know you more is found in here, and that we don't need special experiences. We don't need mir- miracles. We, we pray for them, Father, because you are a generous Father, and because your scripture says we can ask and we can do these things, but our faith isn't based on that. It's based on your Son and what he has done. We thank you for your grace to endure with us, to bear with us, to disciple us. And I ask that you will give everyone here the ability, the the grace to listen to one another. That the things that we disagree on, Father, that we can talk, we can engage in conversation. And that we can use scripture, we can use your word and who you are and wrestle over these things. Life isn't black and white as we would like it to be, Father, and, and oftentimes you give us liberty to make decisions and, and how we ought to live and, and so forth, and it, it's, it's a messy life. I just ask that you give us grace, that you help us maintain unity, that we will continue to love one another as, as we love ourselves, and that we will continue to love you with all of our heart, mind, strength, being, everything that we are, Father. Help us have a zeal for your holiness, Continue to build your church here at Hope and in West Salem. Continue to be glorified. Help us repent of our sins. Forgive us for our sins, Father. Especially as we come to communion now before us. Help us clear our hearts, our consciences before you and any brothers and sisters in Christ that we might have offended. Help us come to this table. And we thank you that we have a seat at this table as believers that we have been invited to dine at this table as we anticipate the return. And come quickly, Lord. Please come quickly. Sooner you come here, sooner we don't have to worry about 
false teachings and these false prosperity gospels that are out there. We can just focus on glorifying you and living in a new world, a new, new heaven, a new earth, Father. And help us live in such a way as we continue to anticipate that return, that we live appropriately, recognizing that this is not our world. And that we're willing to deny ourselves for the sake of your son, for the sake of the gospel. Even when it's unpopular, even when it could be dangerous, Father. Help us have that confidence and that peace. And may all that we do, Father, may we go and glorify you by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.